Tarry here, where the stories never grow old, and you hear something new every time they are told, and it comes clear. So tarry here, where it doesn't matter your age, and when we gather round the table, we all take the stage year after year. So tarry here. Welcome to the Enlightened Radio Storytelling Hour at EnlightenRadio.org. I'm Fanny Crawford. And I'm Stasi Okowski. Today is February 19th, 2024, and our theme today is Wintry Mix. And we have quite an eclectic group of stories for you this morning. Well, How are you, Stash? I'm fine. Today is my, bro- my would be my brother's. 92nd birthday, my oldest brother. Wow. He has passed away, but uh, I was amazed when I woke up this morning and realized that, whoa, my brother would be 92 today. Yikes. (laughs) That's something. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and uh, that phone call that you're with Terry was, that's unusual that that Tony would be on the phone at this time in the morning. But... (laughs) There was something about know, some kind of paperwork for Tony's social security or something Terry was checking on. So. so you're celebrating both your brothers today. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Are you going to see Tony tomorrow? I know Tuesday's off in Tony Day. Not this, not this week. Uh, we were there just a couple of days ago, and we will be there. Uh, oh, I, it's a reminder. I cannot do the radio show next week. I think okay. I told you, John, that already. I cannot do it at all next Monday because I will be in the car or the way to Baltimore early in the morning because Tony has a, has a um, procedure at the hospital um, that, that he has to be at the hospital by 9 o'clock. Okay, and well, so, maybe, maybe I'll find a, a guest stash, somebody to yeah. take your temporary oh, place. Yeah, maybe, uh, what do you call it? You, You'll hear from uh, Jason. Oh, I'm not, do, I won't be interviewing Jason without you there. No. That's entirely your, oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> your thing. That's, right. That'd be great. Right. But there are other people to right. ask. Um, so. Okay, well, do you want to say anything about Speak Story Series? Story Series. Well, coming up is Peter Cook, I think. Yep, I think you're right. And um, I'm looking forward to that, and I'm hoping to be there in person. I missed the last one. So it was a, had a rough day and didn't get, to, I just decided it wasn't worth getting in the car and, <laughs> and driving again in the, but you, you have, were on Zoom. Yeah, and oh, we had seen Gail Ross, and it was a wonderful, wonderful show. Yeah, she was great. Um, I would, I did want to mention this. Terry and I went. Terry took me on a, a on a beautiful date yesterday. We went to Shenandoah University, which mm-hmm. is just twenty about twenty miles down the road from us. Mm-hmm. And we went to there uh, to a piano recital. A man by the name of Carlton, um, I think Stevenson, 
20, 20 some years old. An hour and a half performance. And on the way home, I told Terry, speaking of numbers, I, I think I heard conservatively at least a million different notes. <laughs> I've never, I, I have been to an incredible number of musical performances in my lifetime. I've, I've loved, Terry has taken, uh, we've gone to the symphony, we've gone to concerts, you know, I attended many concerts where Terry played, and she's an accomplished musician. I have never been in the presence of such a great performer in my entire life. I've never, it just, the place was just full, uh, hundreds of people there in the, in the, in their performance center at Shenandoah. And um, apparently this guy has some reputation because it was announced that he was scheduled to do a master class for the graduate school on Monday morning. However, that had to be canceled because he had just the, just the evening before had gotten a request from the New York Symphony for him to appear Tuesday in a concert. And so he was going to be playing his concert this afternoon and then traveling to New York to prepare for a concert on Tuesday with the New York Philharmonic. And I, I, it was just, it was the most amazing performance I've ever seen in my life. I, I was amazed that his hands didn't fall off. <laughs> it's just incredible. I've never, I've never seen anything like it. It was just wonderful. Wow. Clearly, it made an impression on you. Wow. Really made an impression on Terry, too. Good. Okay. Well, I just wanted to reiterate. So Peter Cook is on March, uh, March 12th. Tuesday, March 12th, and then Antonio Roja on April 9th. Is that, there you go. That right? Yeah. Very good. Okay. I'm sorry. I, I, for some reason, I cannot find the paper with my dates on it. That's okay. That, that I think people will be satisfied with those two dates, but you, you should give them the website for Speak. Uh, speakstoryseries.com. Okay. And you can get all the information and get uh, season tickets and see how you could help out if you're interested. And um, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to the, to the next performance. Have we passed the deadline for the grant for the search for a teller? Oh, yes. The, um, it, we're, we're waiting now. We should hear any, any day now. We should hear who has been selected for the, you mean for the uh, commission? Piece? Yes. Uh -huh. Yes. Um, I haven't heard yet, but I'm sure we will hear soon. Okay. Very good. The, the jury is still out. <laughs> okay. Well, after we tell a couple stories, I'll have some more dates of other storytelling activities oh, coming up. Good. Do you want to start with the story? Well, I think I will. And, and, um, Let's see. I'm going to begin with a story titled Festival. The, well, the, 
The end of winter festival blazes in the village below as I open my cabin door from up here in the hills. There is much to see. I shiver and wrap my cloak about me, move silently behind trees to watch people prepare the day. Bonfires as tall as men decorate the landscape. It is early still, but the villagers huddle before them, bartering, exchanging what remains of their meager autumn harvests. No waftings, excuse me, no waftings, no wafting scents of roasted meats reach me this festival. No laughter, no uproar of music and celebration. Three men finger their wooden whistles. There are only a few who pretend to dance steps. At the center stands a thick pole. There is a man bound to this by his ankles, by his middle, by his arms, and by his neck. He has been beaten flayed beyond recognition to lie in pain a whole day before they dragged him out of, to his death. Some say he didn't live that long, but ceremony would be followed. Every villager lays a bundle of sticks at his feet. They spit in his blood-crusted face. Riddance to you, John Haberman, and a curse upon your bones. Superstitious fools. John Hagerman has done nothing wrong. He has not harmed these people, has not stolen their livestock. His crime was to have had too large a harvest in a village where having plenty is viewed with suspicion. Burn, came the verdict. He has seduced the gods of harvest. He found favor with them, neighbors had accused. He has been given our share of bounty. What I have is also yours, John Haberman protested. His words trembling though, I knew his body did not. He believed the people would see reason. But the people had stopped listening and John Haberman was mistaken. Village men began whispering on their boats, on their hunting excursions. Village women whispered as they gleaned their meager gardens, collected laundry from lines before Elder Smith had arrived from the city and pronounced sentence. Village had long decided the man's fate. Elder Smith had John Haberman bound and held for a festival night. His hands were burned. His lands were burned. His children were sent back to his dead wife's village. They would be seen no more. Elder Smith left the leaders of the village to carry out his instructions. The coward would bear no blood on his own hands. I returned from two weeks foraging to find John Haberman's fate ordained. I am grateful to be mostly ignored here in my hill home. I load my sled, tie it to my own waist. When there is hauling to do, I must do it myself. My cattle, too, were taken to fill bellies in the village. But I am fast and I am strong. I, I bless the snow. Without it, this journey would be impossible. On snow I can pull in mud, I stand no chance. Wind is fluting through the trees. Every twig plays a different angry note. It slices through my cloak and kirtle. It knots the hair I forgot to tie back. Noon snow slaps my cheeks like an angry mother. One mile, I can no longer smell the festival wood fires. Two miles, there are no more footprints along the mountain pass. Three miles, I am trudging slower. 
I cannot breathe this ice air much longer. Four miles. If the snow holds, this may be far enough. I unload, uncord my load, choose my spot as winter thunder echoes among the hills. I brace myself against an oak and use my legs to push it off the sled down the hill. My burden rolls five times before coming to a stop against the trees. It's the best I can do. I pack snow around it. I need to hurry back before his fires are lit. I reach my cabin as a kind of frenzy takes hold of the village. Every man, woman, and child is throwing hate at the pole at this man who is offering. I grab my prepared torch, race down the path, praying that they will not start without me. There is plenty of time. I light my torch and stand among them, seething, waiting the signal when it is given. I make sure my torch is the first on the pile. I stand among them an hour, making certain consumption will occur. It is good you have decided to join us. Old Jasper Twining is staring at me. Many of us wonder about you up there alone in your cabin. I break my gaze from his leering eyes. My work is done for now. It is time to return home. I take my rest in the cabin for one more night. Before dawn, I bind my last few items to the sled. It is good I do not have much. I pay my cabin door on my way, pat my cabin door on my way out. I've seen much from this cabin, but few have seen me. I say a prayer to thank the evergreens for their shore cover. My feet find a path I followed yesterday. As I pass the four mile mark, I look down to the clumpum trees where I packed snow to hug and hold him when I could not. I toss near him the blood-stained leather flail I had used to exact whatever wrench was possible. Small consolation. The wind still blows, still cuts into me like a dagger, but I am warm, remembering the fire and the smell of the flesh of Elder Smith. The end. Oh, isn't that, isn't that a brutal winter tale? Yes, it is. Yeah. I love, it's one of my favorite stories. I, it's, it's from a, a storyteller, a story writer um, who I met many years ago in Pittsburgh. I, I, went, I, I joined a guild in Pittsburgh when I when we first moved there in 2012, and at the very first, I've spoken about this guild before, but at the very first meeting, I sat next to a woman named Laura, and um, we went around the table introducing ourselves. And Laura was a lovely person. I still uh, correspond with her through uh, Facebook. And she is a writer. I asked her where she told stories, and she said, oh, I, I, I write stories. I, I don't ever tell, but the, everyone here has been very kind to me. Let me come and read my stories occasionally. And um, that, that night, uh, when she read a story, which, I, which is one of my favorites, also, another one of my favorites, um, afterwards, I asked her, I said, may I have a copy of that story? And, uh, and she said, 
uh, sure. And she had a copy of her book uh, with her. And um, so I, I bought a copy of her book and, um, and, I, and I've used it a number of times. And that's one of the stories in that book. And um, I, I performed maybe four or five of her stories at, at different places. And uh, I've never told the, the stories I've used from her book. I've only told at festivals or performances for adults and never told for children because they're really kind of scary. Um, and um, always, uh, when I saw that, when you reminded me of the title for the day's theme, right away I thought of Laura's book, because um, every time every time I've told any of her stories, I feel cold. <laughs> <laughs> What's the name of the book? Tales the Crow Taught Me. Tales the Crows, plural, taught me. And her name was Laura Lovick, Laura, and then Lovick, L-O-V-I-C, hyphen, Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y. I'm going to look that up. It is, it is, it's a marvelous collection. All right. Some of them are kind of spooky. I'm going to use some others. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Well, that was quite the start to our wintry mix theme. Yeah. (laughs) I like that. Well, I'm going to give a couple dates and then I'm going to tell, I'm going to shift gears and tell a completely different kind of story. So we already said that March 12th is Peter Cook at Speak Story Series. Uh, March 10th, I will be doing a small gathering at my house um, for the Unitarian Universalist Church of Hagerstown. It was an auction offering by me. They asked me to um, put in the auction a storytelling gathering entitled Discovering Great Grandfather um, and How I Became a Storyteller. So I'm going to do that um, and I have to charge the rate that the tickets went for at the auction, but there is space for a couple more people. Um, I think the tickets were $15, but I have to double check that. And uh, so that's Sunday, March 10th in the afternoon. And then March 17th, well, March 14th is the start of the National Women's Storytelling Festival in Fairfax, Virginia, but it's also on just on Zoom. And I will be doing a short 10 minute story at the um, live opening. The Zoom events start on Thursday the 14th, but the grand opening is Friday the 15th and I will be telling a 10 minute story at the opening. There are about 22 tellers all together, 23 tellers, I think, but they won't all be telling in that first, um, uh, installment. (laughs) Um, the festival goes into Friday evening and all day Saturday and Saturday evening. And then on Sunday morning at 1030 for the first event, I will be doing a one hour portrayal of my mother 
And after that, there's a story swap and then storytelling continues until four in the afternoon. And that's, that's in Fairfax, but it's also all online. So if you go to Better Said Than Done, Jessica Piscatelli Robinson's story venue online, you can look up the story festival and the prices and the schedule and all the different tellers that are coming. And, I'm, and I've been saying over and over again that 20% of the audience for the last five years has been male. So men are certainly welcome and invited to come as well to the National Women's Storytelling Festival. March 24th, Chris Potts, a local teller, will be telling at Susan Gordon's house. And so if anybody's interested in that, actually, if you're interested in any of these events, you can call me, Fanny Crawford, at 301-730-1638, or you can reach me on email at fanitsky at hotmail.com. And then the last date I was going to mention is Antonio Kosha on April 9th at Speak. Can you say again about March 10th? Is that a new thing? Um, March 10th is at my house, and it's not new. It was scheduled way back in June when the Unitarian Universalist Church service auction was held. And so oh. that, and I entered it in that auction, and I, I think there are eight people coming but there's still a few spaces. So if you want to come stash or if anybody else wants to come, you're welcome. I, Sunday afternoon. I don't, I, for some reason, of course, who knows what's in my mind and what's not <laughs> in my mind. I, I didn't know that. And I'm, I, unfortunately, I have something scheduled for that day. I wish I didn't. But. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't talked about it much because it's a, technically it's a church event. Oh, okay. Um, but I'm because there's a couple spaces. I'm opening it up. I just have to make sure that I collect the money for the church if I open it up to anybody else. All right. If mm. your plans change, just let me know. Okay, I will. Plus, I always okay. like to support your efforts. Thank you. <laughs> I like you to support my efforts. Yeah, okay, I attend your church more than any other church. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for story done. For stories. <laughs> Okay, well, this, um, this story I'm going to tell now is um, an adaptation of a story that I read in a book called Five Minute Nursery Tales, and I'm shifting it a bit from that nursery tale genre. So in my version, this story is called The Prince and the Snowman. Yes. Could we have a time check? I have um, sixteen minutes into the show. Okay. All right, thank you. One morning in the kingdom of Icy Land, Prince Jack looked out of his bedroom window and saw that the palace was covered in a thick layer of snow. Snow lay on the turrets and along the tops of the walls. There was snow in the well and snow on the guards' hats. The palace garden was so deep with snow, it looked as though it was covered in icing. The snow looked fresh, inviting, and untouched, 
apart from the line of paw prints made by Prince Jack's favorite dog, Bo. The prince said to Bo, I'm gonna make a princess snow person. And he rushed off to find his warmest coat and gloves. And soon the prince was busy in the garden, rolling a great ball of snow for the snow princess's body and another one for her head. At last, the princess was finished and Jack put a beautiful gold paper crown on her head and a scarf around her neck. Now, Jack said to his dog, Bo, the princess needs a face. And he said to Bo, go and find the princess a nose. Said Bo and trotted off. Jack found three lumps of coal in the basement of the palace and stuck them in a row on the princess's head to make a mouth. And then he stuck a stone on each side of the princess's head for ears. Bo came back with a piece of carrot in his mouth. Well done, said Jack. That's perfect for a nose. And Jack stuck the carrot in place. At that moment, a footman appeared at the palace window. Prince Jack, it's time for your fencing lesson. Jack went inside, and do you know, he immediately forgot all about the snow princess and giving her a pair of eyes. Meanwhile, the princess, the snow princess was thinking to herself and waiting. She was happy to have ears. She heard the prince go inside, but she thought to herself, well, I'd better keep my wits about me because the prince has forgotten to give me eyes. And she listened hard with her stone ears and sniffed with her carrot nose, but there was no one there. Even Bo, the dog, had disappeared into the palace. Night came and all the lights in the palace went out. In the middle of the night, a storm blew up. The windows of the palace rattled. The trees creaked and groaned and the wind moaned. The snow princess strained her stone ears even harder. And now she could hear a fearsome icy jangle and a piercing shrieking laugh. It was the Ice King. And as the Ice King blew past the Snow Princess, she felt the Ice King's cold breath on her snowy cheek and the touch of those icicle fingers on her snowy brow. The Snow Princess shivered with fear. And now she heard the Ice King's icy on the palace door and her howl as she slipped through the keyhole. There was silence for a while. And then suddenly the Snow Princess heard a window being flung open and the Ice King's cruel laugh. Oh, he's leaving, thought the Snow Princess with relief. But what was this? She could hear the sound of sobbing. And, and as the Ice King passed, he heard the princess, the prince's voice calling, help me. And then there was silence. 
save for the sound of the wind in the trees. Oh, the Ice King is carried off. The prince, thought the Snow Princess. There's only one thing to do. And she drew in her breath with all her might and shouted through those cold lips, he thought, she thought to herself, no one will hear my shouts above the noise of the wind. But soon she felt a warm glow on her cheek. Can I help? Said a soft, kindly voice. I am the south wind and I can see you're in trouble. The snow princess could hardly believe her stone ears. Oh yes, please help. The ice king has carried off Prince Jack, and, and I'm afraid he may die of cold. I'll see what I can do, said the south wind. And the south wind started to blow a warm, warm breeze. She blew, and he blew, and he blew, and he blew, and soon the ice king's icy arms began to melt. And the Prince Jack was able to slip from the Ice King's grasp. It was the Snow Princess who saved you, whispered the South Wind in the Prince's ear as he carried the Prince back to the palace. The Prince could hear the trip, trip, trip sound of snow being melted by the South Wind's warm breath and as the prince reached the palace gate, the sun was rising and the snow in the garden was turning to slush. Oh, I must see my snow princess before she's gone, he thought. There was the snow princess on the lawn. Her crown was starting to slide off her head and her mouth was all crooked. The prince rushed over to the snow princess and to his astonishment, she spoke to him, please give me my eyes before I melt completely, she begged. Yes, of course, said Prince Jack. And he pulled two buttons off his jacket and put them in place on the melting face. Oh, what a handsome prince you are, said the snow princess, looking at him through her button eyes. I, I have one last request before I leave you, said the Snow Princess. Will you marry me? Oh, said Prince Jack, and without thinking twice, for how could he refuse the request of one who had saved him from the Ice King? He could not bear to think that the Snow Princess was melting away. Jack glanced down so that the princess would not see the tears in his eyes. Princess, he said. <laughs> and when the snow princess looked in his eyes, she transformed into a real princess. For once in his life, Prince Jack was speechless. And the princess said, long ago, the ice king carried me away, just like he did you. 
He cast a spell on me that meant I could only return to earth as falling snow. But by agreeing to marry me, you have broken the spell, said the princess. And so the prince and the snow princess were married and lived happily ever after. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that about the silliest snow story you ever heard? No. <laughs> no? <laughs> Well, I don't I, I kind of like this version. <laughs> okay. Well, so um, we should thank Andy Alfred Irwin. Oh, we should. Yes, indeed. For uh, his wonderful opening each week on our show with this original song, Terry Here. He's playing his guitar and singing the verses. It's just beautiful. And what a perfect way to open any storytelling. <laughs> yes. An invitation to come and sit on the porch and listen to storytelling. So we have so much fun with An Andy introducing us. Yes. And I think that Andy is coming to Stories in the Round in July. In July. Yes. So yeah. he's when I get the dates lined up. July. Yes, he is going to do a workshop in July. So when I get the date straightened out with him, I, he hasn't signed his contract yet, but I think pretty sure he's coming because now he's committed to the workshop as well. well that would be good. And I wanted to say that the very first session of Stories in the Round will be April 22nd and Susan Gordon is going to open the series with the latest chapters of her novel, um, Finding Laurel Creek, wow. that she's been working on for a good five years now. April 22nd. I think she's close to the finale. <laughs> oh. I don't think she's, well, I'm, I, I know she's not finished yet, but she's getting really close. So we might be the last uh, incomplete telling because it's going to be coming up pretty quick. Okay. And are there any others in, uh, in your lineup yet? None others that I am sure enough of that I want to list them without. Okay. All right. Do you want to tell another story? I would. I, uh, <laughs> I could do it. I could tell our listeners that they're listening to the Enlightened Radio Storytelling Hour at enlightenradio.org and that I'm Fanny Crawford and you are Stasi Okowski. I'm glad you remembered. I, I, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I, well, and just in case, I always have a, a name plate in front of me. Okay, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> and we are broadcasting from Bolivar, West Virginia, Martinsburg, West Virginia, and Hagerstown, Maryland. Right. Okay, take it away, Mr. Z. Okay, this is another of the, from the book, Tales, The Crows Taught Me by Laura Lovick Lindsay. And, um, Fred and Jean York pulled their RV into the picnic grove lined in lilacs, pines, and firs. They've been working their way up the coast since leaving their San Francisco home two weeks before. The trip had been friends, Fred's suggestion. The Thursday they left home marked 10 years since their daughter, son-in-law, and five-year-old granddaughter, Ingrid, 
had been taken from them in a car accident the locals still talked about. According to the skid marks left behind, Scott had been forced too close to the cliff's edge. Car spun and there had been no guardrail. The fire hadn't left much to bury. Fred gathered their paper wrappers, crumpled them into a ball. He chucked them into the dying down fire, which gave a pop to let them know it was still trying. That sound was echoed by a similar crow, by a similar crack from within the near woods. He and Jean snapped their heads toward the sound's direction. A dark shape moved almost imperceptibly among trees. Raccoon? Large dog? Um, maybe a bear even? Not un unheard of here in Oregon. But not common either. Fred grabbed a piece of pie crust from the full pan between them, threw it near the shape. No response. His hand found a small stone near his foot while his eyes fought to focus the shape. He tossed the stone, again, stone again. No response. There was silence for a moment before Fred decided they'd been here long enough. Let whatever it was come scavenge. He spoke as casually as he could. Gene, dear, how about you go see if we have more of that good coffee in the pot? Jean rose slowly, unwillingly, but Fred soothed her with a slight smile, never glancing away from the dark mass. I'll be right there, darling, he nodded. She crossed behind him while he felt around by his feet for the fire bucket. He doused the fire, then back slowly. The, the thing shifted. It wanted what Fred and Jean were leaving behind. Fred's hand found the side of the RV. Here, love. Jean used her voice to lead him. He felt her hand slip under his arm, guide him up the steps backwards into the RV. Jean slammed the doors. They were safe. She looked at him, shaking. Fred kept his shaking inside. It's not moving. Jean gestured out the side window. Nope, well, let's move on. Let it have your pie then, he nudged Jean. Probably follow us all the way to Seattle once it gets a taste of that. <laughs> Jean dared a weak laugh. They made their way to their seats, buckled in, and Fred started the motor. They were back to the comfort of the highway within seconds. Several towns later, Fred became braver and began joking about what they might have seen. Could have been a wolf, but I'm betting on Sasquatch. They're all over here. You can pick, pick them out by the dozen. Some of these smaller towns. Jean gave the laugh he was looking for. She seemed to have calmed down. Fred turned on the radio. Frank Sinatra began singing about strangers in the night. Jean rolled her eyes and turned the station. Back in the woods, it was good. What the people had left, it was good. She didn't remember that it was called pie. She wouldn't have cared anyway. What mattered was getting it all into her stomach before competition called out from the woods. Raccoons frequented this, this area as, as often as she did. She knew what to do if they posed a problem. 
She wouldn't have lived this long if she hadn't been able to follow her instincts, protect her food. A sharpened stick lay next to her. She was fast and had found many meals by spearing what approached her as she ate. She wiped her hands on the stolen giraffe t-shirt she wore. She didn't remember it was called giraffe. She didn't remember it was called a t-shirt. She didn't remember that she herself had once been called Ingrid. The fair-haired teenager moved silently back through her woods. She balanced over a log bridge, crossing the same deep gully she had long ago crawled into after that terrible, terrible fire. That story came from a writer's workshop. Whoa. So all of her stories are um, scary and a bit gruesome. <laughs> yes, they are. And I, um, <laughs> when I first met Laura, I said, I remember asking her after about, oh, maybe a couple of months. Did you have terrible childhood? <laughs> and she said, actually, no, I had a wonderful childhood. She said, I, I, oh, and she said, I guess you asked me because my stories are kind of, I said, well, they're a little scary. I said, but um, I just wondered. And she said, no, I, I, I know in my writers group, I've been challenged a couple of times that I should try writing something pleasant. And she said, <laughs> Um, I only write what I, what I write, and you know, the stories occur to me on theme of this or that. And uh, the first time I heard that story, I I almost had I, I I did have some bad dreams because of that story, because of just the thought of you know. Losing a grandchild, and 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 then you know a grandchild that survived a terrible accident and was living in the woods, um, but this story has appealed to me because it's it is kind of scary. I, I do like scary tales, and um, I used that at a um, at a festival in. Pittsburgh, Three River Storytelling Festival. And um, it was at one, on a Saturday night, and it was when there were ghost tales. And when I finished it, the audience was so quiet. And, and um, a man in the audience said, that was very short. Would you please tell it again? Oh my goodness. And, and I, I said, well, I don't know. I looked around and the person who was organizing the event said, yes, go ahead. It was short, but please tell it again. And um, the second time I told it, I got a nice round of applause. And afterwards, I had a number of people say, I was glad that man spoke up and said, tell it again, because I was afraid I missed something. <laughs> <laughs> I said, 
maybe I should tell it slower. <laughs> and the people who were standing around just chuckled. And he said, no, he said, it was, he said, most people tell longer stories. And I said, normally I would tell a longer story. I said, but this appealed to me. And it was kind of a kind of scary. Um, it wasn't a, a really nice place to tell a scary story. It was between two buildings. There was a little courtyard. They had a little fire in the center, in a, in a little grate. And um, uh, it, it was a perfect setup. But anyway, it was the only time I've ever been asked to tell the story again immediately. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, <laughs> we're having quite a selection of stories today. This, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go next if that's okay. Sure. Um, and I think this one's much shorter than any of the ones we've told so far, but we'll see. This is a story from a Native American tradition. Uh -huh. uh, it's a, a Tlingit tale from Southern Alaska. Uh, that I've adapted from the 1998 winter issue of Parabola magazine. Uh, uh, this, so the story is retold by Jane Hughes Gigno, G-I-G-N-O-U-X, uh, from her story collection, Some Folks Say, Stories of Life, Death, and Beyond. <clears throat> Way up north in the land of the Northern Lights, where the sun never sets in the summer and the winter nights last for months. There once lived a man named Ibar, who hunted seals and walrus to feed his family. One winter day while he was off hunting, Ibar's kayak overturned into the icy waters. Down, down he went to the bottom of the sea then slowly, he rose to the surface. It was cold, of course, very, very cold, and Ibar feared for his life. But he was wearing his fur-lined walrus skin coat, and he was a strong swimmer. So it took him only a few minutes to reach land again. Yet when he climbed out of the water, he was in a strange and unfamiliar place. He saw a cave opening close by. In front of the cave, there were many small, bushy plants, now mostly woody and bare of leaves. He still had his precious small bag of life-saving implements and tokens tied to his waist, including the small fire starter flint and striking stone, the ones his uncle had given him when he first taught Ibar how to build a fire. Ibar collected an armload of those bushy plants and crawled into the cave. It was a small, dark place, just big enough to build a small fire. He stripped off his clothing and quickly went through the steps to get a tiny blaze going. He was exhausted from the shock of icy water and his desperate swim to safety and hurried fire-making. He curled close to the fire, spread his clothes beside him to dry, and soon fell asleep. When he awoke, it was daylight again, and his clothing was dry. 
He dressed quickly and set off walking, not knowing where he was, not knowing where he was going. He walked and walked and walked all day till he was so tired he could walk no more. Ibar sat down under a large tree with spreading branches, unusual in his experience in a place like this, and some distance from a strong flowing river. The fast moving water roared in his ears as he rested under that tree, and Ibar soon felt himself drifting off to sleep. In the middle of the night, he was awakened briefly by a loud crash. At the first light of dawn, Ibar could see that a piece of the riverbank had broken off and been swept away with the current. The next night, he slept there under the tree as well, and his sleep was interrupted again by the same sound. Sure enough, in the morning, he could see another piece of riverbank had vanished. Every night for nine nights, a portion of the riverbank fell into the current with a loud crash. By now, the edge of the river was so close, it was almost at his feet. Ibar felt he could neither run away nor move. He was stuck there under that tree. On the 10th night, the river current was stronger than usual, and Ibar could see down into the swirling waters. Suddenly, there was a great rumbling sound. The river bank broke away right under him, and he fell helpless into the water. Ibar tried to cry out for help, but when he opened his mouth, the sound of a newborn baby emerged. He looked up into familiar shining eyes, he was being gently held and rocked. A man, no more. He had been reborn as a baby among his own people. The thing, fling it. Wow. Isn't that wonderful? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've never read anything like that in a story before. It just grabbed me. Wow. <laughs> you can ask your questions. I can see from your face that you're thinking, but I don't Ooh. know that I have the answers because I haven't had much time to research that story. I have several collections of Native American stories, but since that's a brand new story to me, um, Obviously, when I got this issue of Parabola back in 1998, I didn't read that one. So wow. Um, I didn't, um, if I had a puzzled look on my face, it was because I realized that I, I'm, this is embarrassing, probably shouldn't have said it on the radio. <clears throat> I'm sitting here with earphones on, and I realized that the sound was, I was not hearing very well. Oh. And then I was, and I was wondering, well, why, why wasn't I hearing very well? And then I realized for some reason my earphones weren't connected. Oh! <laughs> so 
apparently plugged in. They're not plugged in. They're they're Bluetooth. They're, they're, yeah, Bluetooth. And for some reason, they had turned off. I knew they were on at the beginning of the show, but they had blinked off. So you think you missed a part? There was no clue that that's what was going to happen at the end. No. I was um, very yeah. startled at the end of the story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Myself. I think I think there's some strange forces going on in the universe here. So, so um, we've we've been on air. I I think we've been on air for about forty six minutes. I think you're right. Yeah. So um, I I don't have another story prepared. That I I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm shocked. I know, I know, I know, I, I know. I I have a book in front of me, but I, I'm re reluctant to to dive into another story that's too long. And <laughs> I, you know, um, I don't know. I got a sudden chill. I think of the, the scary stories have given me a kind of a yeah. Chill. Well, um, there was um. a story that I considered, but it was not uh, one that I was very enthusiastic about, but we could see. This is bad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could tell the other story I have, if, if you want. Sure. You think it's I, too long? Is that what you're well, thinking? Well, no, I don't. I, I think it'll it'll fit. We have okay. we have ten. We'll I guess ten. Ahead. Okay. I'll 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 we'll do this. And and I, I I'm I have told this story before, but I think I I probably I think I told it stories in a round, but I'm not sure. If I did, it was a long time ago. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Summer's fishing had not been kind to Brander. The spring prior to that, uh, not either. Finna herself was hungrier than ever, her swollen belly pushing the table every time she sat. Another child was well on the way. Brander hoped for the seventh boy and, was, and made what spare offerings he could afford to the gods in the hope that that would be true. But as of late, the gods seem to have turned their backs on him. Brander picked his way up the path between cliffs that lined the waters, careful not to catch his shoe on the thick spray, sea sprayed mosses. He trudged the hill homeward. The other men in the village steered their boats to the far part of the harbor, closer to the market. It was easier this way, their nets straining to, to contain their hull. Only a short year before, Brander would have been among them, joking and unloading while the youngest boys of the village raced to be the first to help bring the catch ashore. But these days, he found he was no longer welcome among the men. His bad luck might be catching. They became quiet and elbowed one another when he passed. Laughter and joking stopped when he walked near. Silence, but for winds and water. Instead, village hands busied themselves, stretching forth the net. 
The eyes of those two old fish looked down at their table work as they cut open the catch and watched him walk by. He came in as quietly as he could, but the boys saw him and ran to his side. The older ones helping off with his coat. How many fish today, father? To this, he gave no answer, but continued to pull off his boots, rubbing his feet. The older boys, glaring, punched their brothers who dared talk. His wife squatted at the fire, stirring, scooping, and handing bowls. She smiled at Brander all the way to her eyes and handed him the largest steaming bowl. He noted every day that there was more seaweed and less from their tiny garden, but the coming winter sea could not continue to be generous. Brander's face grayed over at this thought. He turned away from Fina in bed, ashamed to face her, turned his face instead toward the wall that faced the sea. I will go tomorrow and see wise Ingfrid. She, she will tell us how to restore your luck. You know we cannot pay her. Fina shrugged, untroubled. She will pay herself. We will give her half the fish she helps you bring in. The following evening, as he walked through the door, Fina caught his eye with a small nod and tight, nervous smile. There was much to do. She sent the boys to collect wood for the night's fire while she whispered hoarse to him over soup, drawing with her finger on the table. Next morning, Brander awoke with much earlier than usual, picked his way carefully to the beach, sliding down sometimes in his haste to begin his morning's work. He readied his boat, made as though to leave in it, but then he paused and looked around. Surely it was time. He walked the strand of the beach, picking up many small rocks and piling them near his boat. The pile grew. He began placing them in the sand, he, he, almost in full circles around an empty center. Some of these curves he connected with others. Some he left alone, uncompleted. When Brander's work was finished, he stood back and the thought that what he had created looked rather like a ripples of waves that came forth when a stone was tossed into the sea on a fair weather day. Following Ingfrid's careful instructions, he now entered his labyrinth slowly, giving the fae that were plaguing him time to follow. When he reached the center, he paused a moment and then jumped as far as he could outside his many circles and ran for his waiting boat. He pushed off, paddling as hard as fast as he could, the sea heavy on his oars, hopeful. He knew the fae could not cross or leap the lines of their labyrinth as could he. It might take him hours to work their way out. Brandon paddled until he was so far from shore that even the cliffs of home could no longer be seen. Brandon walked quickly up the hill to home late that night, laughing sometimes as he slipped. He, he had taken extra time to row toward market and unload. So full was this boat of fish of all kinds. He had stopped at the village to let some of the men buy him drinks. It had taken longer than he thought. He rejoiced in the many coins in his pocket, the more that were coming. He had just crested the hill when a figure emerged from the cottage. A few steps closer, and he recognized Infrid carrying a small wrapped bundle. She turned in his direction, wrapped her shawl tighter around the bundle, faced him, defiant, then spun towards her home beyond the village and walked away. Brander stood and watched her for many minutes. 
then went inside where his six boys were already sleeping. He climbed in bed next to the now empty, weeping Fina, stroked her hair, kissed the back of her neck. Engfrith, sitting near the fire in her own cottage, drew the child nearer to her. Few questions would be asked by people in the village. They remembered what happened, well, what happened to those who had dared question Engfrid before. This child slept, sated for now by goat's milk. A seventh son, it had been easy enough process, leading the fay to Brander the previous spring. She felt no pangs of conscience. It was the best possible outcome for all concerned. Who better than she to bring up a seventh son? She would know how best to further his abilities. He would never starve in her cottage. He would know and even play with his brothers. Secrets weren't easily kept in a small village. And as for Brandon and Finna, well, it certainly wouldn't be long before they added in an eighth, ninth, and tenth child to their home. Ingrid thought she might even slip Finna some herbs to speed the process along. The child stirred slightly. She picked him up, hiding him, holding him in the firelight, and began to sing. The Fisherman's Tale. I, I, and, I, and I was reluctant to, to use that, but I, I, I had it in my list because of your labyrinth at your place. And, and which Terry loves to walk when we come to stories in the round. I, I can't hear you. I'm sorry, I forgot to unmute. Okay, <laughs> good. I'm, I'm, it's good that we're, it's good that we have pictures to see each other because I, I'm looking at myself pointing to my ears. <laughs> yes, yeah. Okay. I love to walk the labyrinth also. And it, yeah, uh, th that's a that's a really good story, huh. and it's not nearly as bleak as the other two you told. <laughs> no, oh, it's bleak enough. <laughs> it yeah, it is a, you know, anyway that um, that is that is one of my favorite storytelling books. <laughs> well, I should probably close the show. I think we're out of time. Yes, it's uh, been 55 minutes. Yeah, you've been listening to the Enlightened Radio Storytelling Hour at enlightenradio.org. We are community-based radio. This story program encourages our listening audience to tell, share, pass on, and revel in storytelling. And I want to encourage everyone to stay tuned for John Case. And coming up. We are Roots Music. Um, anyway, we're, I don't know what's on the agenda because uh, I have a bot that does that now. So uh, right. yeah. I think it's, I think it's <laughs> Blues and Roots. I think that's what it is. Yeah.